Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, Ephesians chapter 5. And the guys have some Bibles, and they're going to make their way to the back as they do. If you need a Bible, get their attention. Those Bibles are already marked for you at the passage we'll be considering in Ephesians 5. Dear Tech Support, Last year, I upgraded from Boyfriend 5.0 to Husband 1.0, and I noticed a distinct slowdown in overall performance, particularly in the flower and jewelry applications, which operated flawlessly under Boyfriend 5.0. In addition, Husband 1.0 uninstalled many other valuable programs, like Romance 9.5 and Personal Attention 6.5, and then installed undesirable programs such as NFL 5.0, NHL 4.3, MLB 3.0, and NBA 3.6. Conversation 8.0 no longer runs. And House Cleaning 2.6 simply crashes the system. I've tried running Nagging 5.3 to fix these problems, but to no avail. What can I do? Signed, Desperate. Dear Desperate. First, keep this in mind. Boyfriend 5.0 is an entertainment package. (laughs) While Husband 1.0 is an operating system. So try to enter the command C colon backslash I thought you loved me. That will download Tears 6.2, which should automatically install Guilt 3.0. If that application works as designed, Husband 1.0 should then automatically run the applications Jewelry 2.0 and Flowers 3.5. Remember, though, that overuse of the above application can cause Husband 1.0 to default to Grumpy Silence 2.5. Whatever you do, do not install Mother-in-Law (laughs) 1.0. This is not a supported application, and it will crash Husband 1.0. In summary, Husband 1.0 is a great program, but it does have limited memory and cannot learn new applications quickly. You might consider buying additional software to improve memory and performance. I personally recommend Hot Food 3.0 and Lingerie 7.7. Good luck, tech support. Now, in all seriousness, men and women are indeed clearly different. But in our day, it is not easy for men and women to fulfill their God-ordained roles. Are they, after all, really God-given roles for male and female? And if so, what are those roles? An American culture is extremely confused about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And that's because the culture at large has no authoritative source from which to get answers to those kinds of questions. But friends, the great news is this. We have God's Word. And God tells us why he created male and female and the roles that he has assigned to each. We're going to see some practical ways that men can fulfill their God-given role in the home as we remind ourselves of what, of what God says in his Word about the assignments that he has given to we men. And so we have an outline for you that's on the back of your program. If you'll just turn that over and take a look at that. We'll be going through that together. And the first thing we're going to see is that men are created to lead in the home. Men are created 
to lead in the home. Verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For, here is why. That's what the word for. It because. Wives, do this because. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Verse 23 says that the man is the head, husband is the head of the wife. That Greek word kephale means authority. In some contexts, it also means source, but it means nothing less than authority, even when it sometimes means source. And there's debate about that by some who would try to eliminate the roles that God has clearly given to men and women, but it is referring to, indeed, the authority that a husband has in the home over the wife. Now, you may say, since when? When did that start? I didn't get the memo. Well, it turns out that that started a very long time ago, and what I want to do is make sure that you have firmly established in your mind that whether or not American culture, or even American Christian culture, buys into the roles that God has given in Scripture, I want you to understand very clearly what God has said about the man's role in the home. And so I say in your outline that male leadership was established at creation. So men are created to lead in the home, and this male leadership goes all the way back to creation. It was established at creation. Adam was created first in God's divine order. Adam was made first, and it was Adam who was commanded first by God. The second chapter of the Bible, it says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die." So God creates the man first, and it is to the man that God gives the responsibility of following this first command that he's given to humanity. Woman was made second, and the Bible tells us she was brought to the man. That second chapter of the Bible says, The Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now that order is significant that God made the man first, and then he made the woman second, and then he brought her to the man, and we will see what God's comments are on why it was that he brought her to the man in just a moment. But Adam first, Eve second. Man first, woman second. It's significant, and that significance is played out in the second part of your Bible, the, the New Testament. Because in talking about the roles of men and women, not only in the home, but also in the church, here's what the Bible says. I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man. Here's why. For, because. You see that again. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And so, by design, on purpose, God made the man first. God gave the first command to humanity, to the man for responsible execution, and then he made the woman second, and the New Testament draws upon that order, first and second, as to the ongoing authority that men are required to carry out. So male leadership was established at creation, but I say secondly, male leadership was demonstrated at creation. Established, but then also demonstrated. And it was demonstrated a few ways. One of those was this. 
The authority that God had given to the first man, the first male, Adam, was demonstrated in his naming the rest of creation, the animal world. Now, many of you are familiar with those opening chapters of of Genesis, where Adam was given the task of naming the, the animals. The Bible says this, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. And we're going to see in a moment that this naming process is a sign of authority of the one who does the naming over those named. And what's significant about that for male and female roles is this. Here's what the Bible says in just a few verses after what we've read. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So here the man not only names the animals, he names the first woman. She shall be called woman before she came out of man. We'll see in a bit that he gives her another name as well. Now, what's the significance of this whole naming process? Well, this authority that one exercises in the process of naming carried on throughout tradition and in years that, that followed. And you see it in the way kings would treat subjects. You see it biblically in the way kings would treat subjects. For example, 2 Kings chapter 23. Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, son of Josiah, king in place of his father Josiah. And Necho changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. Now in showing his authority, he changes the name. And then you see the same thing in 2 Kings 24. Nebuchadnezzar took the king captive to Babylon. He made Madaniah, his uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. This would often happen when one would vanquish a foe, take captive, show authority by the naming. We see this famously in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel and his friends were carted off to Babylon. The Bible says the king ordered the chief of his court officials to take some of the Israelites captive. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. I'm just going to read for you a few comments about people smarter than me. I like to quote people smarter than me, and they're not very hard to find at all about this naming process and the demonstration of the authority that God had given to Adam in the home. One commentator says, Animals and birds were paraded before the man by the divine zookeeper for the man to name them, thereby exercising his authority over them. Another says, In ancient times, to name something or someone implied having dominion or ownership. Yet another says, It's an act of authority to impose names and of subjection to receive them. And then D.A. Carson says this, Animals were created as the man's companions. They were under human authority. The man named them in chapter 2 and verse 20, but it was intended that they should not be exploited. And so this naming process is indeed a sign of authority. And Adam named 
her woman, but not only that, but in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says this, Adam named his wife Eve. Male leadership was demonstrated by the naming process in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, and it was demonstrated a second way in creation as well. And that is that Eve was made and declared to be Adam's helper. As God paraded the animals in front of Adam, two by two, male and female, it began to dawn on Adam that he was alone. That unlike the animals, Adam had no partner. And so here's what the Bible says. For Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God made a woman. Now in the phrase, suitable helper, here's what Ray Ortland says in a large and helpful volume called Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Here we encounter the paradox of manhood and womanhood. On the one hand, the woman alone, out of all the creatures, was suitable for him. She alone was Adam's equal. A man may enjoy a form of companionship with a dog, but only on a dog's level. With a wife, a man finds companionship on his own level, for she is his equal. On the other side of the paradox, the woman is the man's helper. The man was not created to help the woman, but the reverse. The man is to love his wife by accepting, hear this, the primary responsibility for making their partnership a platform displaying God's glory. And the woman is to love her husband by supporting him in that godly undertaking. The Bible says just very straightforwardly in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, some of you are sitting here hearing this and go, I made a wrong turn coming into this place. Some of you ladies in particular. I'll just comment quickly because I I have to move along for reasons that will become clear in a bit. But let me just say, ladies, as many of you have heard me say before if you've been around for any length of time, that submission does not mean inferiority. In fact, to say that submission means inferiority would place the Christian faith in a position of heresy, and here's why. Because you know that the Bible teaches that there is one God who has eternally existed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in the Bible, it is also clear that God the Son submits himself to the will of God the Father. And yet, God the Son is equal with God the Father is in no way inferior to God the Father, but rather these are roles that are played within what we call the Godhead, the triune God. So the Bible is very clear that there are different roles for us to play, but make no mistake, men and women are equal before God. And so Ray Ortland goes on to say this, in the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying That's why I say, first point in your outline, men, we were created to lead in the home. But secondly, we men have fallen behind in the home. Men have fallen behind in the home. What we've seen so far is God's original design. It is still his design for roles in the home. But matters have become infinitely complicated with the entrance of sin into God's world. We call the first act of sin in the human race the fall. 
And that's why I have placed the word that you filled in, fallen, in quotes. Now, we call it the fall not because it was an accident, like I tripped and and fell down. We call it the fall not because it was an accident, but because it resulted in the removal of humanity from its exalted position of ruling God's world on his behalf. Man now pursues his own agenda rather than God's, and that is a fall from his original position under God. And as a result of that, though, that fall, it's affected the home. In fact, the fall itself, that first sin, involved, as I say in your outline, an attack on the home. The fall involved an attack on the home. Have you ever wondered why we call the first sin Adam's sin? (laughs) I mean, I have as a man. Be okay with me if we called it Eve's sin. Especially since, as we're going to be reminded in just a bit, she played an extremely significant role in that first sin. And yet, throughout history and even in Scripture, it is Adam, it is the man who is held responsible for that first sin. We call the first sin Adam's sin rather than Eve's, even though she was more actively involved than he was. The New Testament says this in Romans chapter 5, sin entered the world through one man. And the reason it does that is because that first sin involved an abdication of responsibility on the part of Adam. And in the New Testament, that is used as support for why men should lead and should fulfill their God-given role, having been created to lead. I've alluded to 1 Timothy 2. Let me give you the the whole passage. It says this, I do not permit a woman to have authority over men. Here's why. Because, for, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And so we've seen that Adam was created first and was to lead his wife, and Eve was given to him as a helper that he was to lead, but he failed to do that. And that's why then the next phrase says this in that passage, and Adam was not the one deceived, It was the woman who was deceived. This is saying that God's order in the home was violated in the original sin of humanity. It's not saying that the woman was more susceptible to deception. Many people read that and they say, well, she was the one deceived, and that's the reason that God doesn't have women in charge is because women are more susceptible to deception. No, he was created first, she was created second, and part of the temptation to that original sin was an attack upon God's design in the home. The the mere fact that it was the woman playing the dominant role was contrary to God's intention. And indeed, it was the woman playing the dominant role. Let me remind you of what Genesis chapter 3 tells us. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And then it goes on, the dialogue does. The woman said to the serpent. So now it's the serpent to the woman. Now the woman is talking back. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now do you remember to whom this command was given? It was given to Adam. And Adam has relayed it. She messes it up a little bit. God didn't say anything about not touching it. But nevertheless, she's the one now conversing with with the serpent. 
And then the serpent just directly contradicts what God says. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then the sad tale says this. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, wisdom, she took some and ate it. But it's still not Eve's sin. It's still Adam's sin. It's still the man. Why is this? If you're paying attention, you should be asking yourself, by the way, where is Adam in all this? Isn't he supposed to be leading us home? Why is Adam not around while his family's headed for spiritual disaster? Not to mention the rest of us who are his children. Adam, where are you? The next verse says this. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. The first sin, the fall, involved an attack upon the home. And Adam is responsible because Adam allowed that attack to take place. Adam is responsible because he is the one that God had assigned to make his home a platform to display the glory of God. The fall involved an attack upon the home. But then I say in your outline as well, it has then resulted in confusion in the home. The fall resulted in confusion in the home. God approaches Adam in Genesis chapter 3 after this sin. And the Bible says, God said to Adam, Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now again, notice who God is addressing. Adam, I told you. I placed you in charge, and now, Adam, I am asking you, have you eaten from the tree? Of course, God knows he has. He's simply smoking Adam out now. He addresses Adam because he is responsible, and like any good man, Adam promptly proceeds to blame his wife. Because the next verse says, the man said, and the first two words out of his mouth are the woman. Here is a total abdication of responsibility. He abdicated in the act itself, and now he is abdicating in the meeting out of consequences. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. He's not only shift-blaming to the woman, but very subtly he is saying, it's the woman, notice, and we both know who put her here, I mean, implied in this is, look, you've only made one woman, and it looks like you messed up. It's the woman you put here with me. From this day forward, blame shifting becomes now natural because of our sin nature. For us as men to shift blame and abdicate our responsibilities, and of course women shift blame as well. The first sin involved an attack on the home and a successful attack on the home at that. Blame shifting began here, but more began here. 
Because God questions Adam first, but then God questions the woman. He questions the serpent. But here's what God says to the woman. To the woman the Lord said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, remember the context of this. They've committed the first sin. God is meeting out consequences. To Adam, he has said, it is now going to be by the sweat of your brow that you will eke out a living. And to the woman, he is saying, there will be pain in childbirth. That will be a reminder of your role in this, this first sin. But then at the end of these consequences, he says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, how is a woman desiring her husband part of the punishment, part of the consequence for sin, because that sounds like that's a good thing. Husband and wife, or a wife to have desire, including sexual desire for her husband, is a good thing. Well, the explanation comes in the next chapter. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain has committed the first murder. And so now all children, all progeny of Adam and Eve are now born with a sin nature. And that sin nature manifests itself in the murder of of Abel by Cain. And God is questioning Cain in Genesis chapter 4, and here's what, here's what God says. The Lord said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Now notice this phrase, it desires to have you, but you must master it. That phrase, it desires to have you, but you must master it. That's the same Hebrew phrase as in the prior chapter when God spoke to Eve and said, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Sin desires to have you. And God is saying to Eve, you will desire to have your husband. Like sin desires to rule, you will desire to rule. And he will respond by sinfully ruling over you. So from this day forward, not only do you have blame shifting now in marital relations, you have the battle of the sexes and it becomes natural. Many women seek to lead their husbands, contrary to God's design, and as we will see, contrary to God's redesign in Christ. Ladies, you can help or you can hinder your husbands in this awesome role of leadership. And I ask you, dear sisters, to ask yourself, am I helping my husband or am I hindering him? Am I supporting him or am I opposing him? Because of this, though, many men seek to sinfully dominate their wives or to passively abdicate their God-given role. Brothers, men, we were created to lead in the home. Sin has caused us to fail in fulfilling our role. We've fallen behind. But God in Christ is recreating us and is in the process of restoring homes to their original design. And rather than men sinfully dominating their wives or passively abdicating their responsibility, Christian men are being called to do what I say thirdly in your outline. Called to serve in the home. Men, on this Father's Day, we are being called to serve in our homes. Now, how? I say there that we are called to serve by loving leadership. Men serve by loving leadership. Ephesians 5 and verse 25 
Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I've given you this working definition of biblical love a number of times. Here it is again. Love is this, doing what is in the best interest of another. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. So when Ephesians 5.25 says, husbands, love your wives. Husbands, do what is in the best interest of your wives. We are called to lead them by loving them, which means doing what is in their best interest. This means then that a man must do, a man must act on behalf of his wife. But in order for we men to act, to do what's in the best interest of our wives, we've got to know what that best interest is. Which means, guys, we've got to know our wives. Which means we have to reinstall Conversation 9.0. Because the Bible says this about the husband-wife relationship. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And when the first part of that verse says, husbands, be considerate in the way you live with your wives. We use the word considerate. We say so-and-so is a considerate person. We mean that's roughly a synonym for polite. That's not what this is saying. It's not saying husbands be polite as you live with your husbands. She has to do that. But when it uses the word considerate here, actually in the King James it says, husbands dwell with your wives according to knowledge. And so this word for considerate means know something. Consider. Think about. It's like when we say consider this. Think about this. And what we're being told here, husbands, is think about your wives. Consider your wives. Live with them in a knowledgeable way. So it means knowing that women and men are different in general. That should be obvious, not obvious to our culture, hopefully obvious to you all. So know that, consider that, that your wife is not like you. She can't do the stuff you do. She's not called to do the stuff you do. Men and women in general are different. But this is a call as well, men, if God has given us a wife, for us to know our wives in particular. Yes, they are a category, woman, different from man by God's design. But you have a woman in particular, and she is a unique creation, womanly creation. And you need to know her in particular. That means getting to know her weaknesses and her strengths and how you can help her. And the way this is written by Peter, when it says be considerate, it's written in the Greek language in a way that it's to be an ongoing activity. That is, we're to seek to know our wives for life. So men are to serve their homes by loving leadership, actively knowing what our wives need and our children need by extension. But we're also to serve, I say in the outline, by godly leadership. Godly leadership. Loving leadership, yes. Doing what's in the best interest, because we know what that is. But godly leadership. Again, Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to do this, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, And the goal is to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. 
Now here, Paul, who wrote that, is comparing the love that we men are to have for our wives, for our families, with the love that Christ has for his church. And the goal that Christ has for his church is to present her without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle, holy. That's why I say here, brothers, we serve by godly leadership. When it says in verse 26, the washing with water through the word, it's referring to the cleansing effect of God's word on those who hear it and heed it. But in order for it to have that effect, in order for us, we men, to lead our families in a holy direction, in order for the washing of water through the word to have its effect, it means a couple of things. Here's one. It means, guys, we have got to make the word of God central to our homes. If we've been called by God to lead our wives in a holy direction, and we have. And if it is through the cleansing of water through the word, that means, guys, the word has to be central to our homes. Now, when I say this, you may think of a family altar time or a set time of devotions with a wife and children. Those are very good things. But that does not make the word central to your home. Let me just stop there. Did you know that? It's possible for you to, every day of your life, have a time where you gather the, the wife and the children and you have a time where you read a, read a passage and you pray, which is, as I say, a very good thing. But that does not make the word central to your home any more than attending church makes Christ central to your life. It can become just something you do. If Christ is central to our lives, he is so Monday through Saturday, not only on Sunday, right? And if the Word of God is central to our homes, it is so not only in a set time of reading and discussing, but at all times. From the moment you rise to the time you go to bed. In our conversations, men, we are regularly invoking God's Word. And in so doing, we are following what God said in Deuteronomy 6. These commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Teachable moments for our children, but teaching them not just practical how-to, that's all valuable stuff from a dad, sure, but teaching them from the Word of God. In this situation, at this moment, in this circumstance, in this trial, here is what the Lord God Almighty says. In response to this struggle that you're having, or this sin that's been committed against you, here is what the Lord God says. Men, if we're going to serve our families by godly leadership, we must make the word central. The last part of verse 27 teaches us that we must protect our families from harm, harmful influences. Because remember, our objective for our families is the same as that of Christ for his church. Last part of verse 27, which is to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless. This means, men, that among other things, we protect our families from spiritually harmful influences. 
How many of you men would stand idly by while someone broke into your home and harmed your family? And of course the answer is none of us would do that. Much less would any of us actually participate in the harm with an intruder. Now if we would be vigilant and active in protecting our families from physical harm, why would we men not be more vigilant and active in protecting from spiritual harm? And yet many of us are not. We may have alarms on our homes. We may have taken pains to have our financial house in order. But we've allowed spiritual intruders into our homes. Sometimes by invitation. If we need to know our wives and children for how best to love them, then, guys, we need to know their particular vulnerabilities in order to protect them. My wife, Kim, as I said last week, for those that were in our second hour, she's very feeling-oriented. We're different. Not only as male and female, we're different in our personalities and our strengths and weaknesses. She's feeling-oriented. She can feel the pain of others, including my pain. So in order to protect her, one of the things it means is that I do not burden her with all the burdens of my ministry. She can tell when things are weighing on me. And I will ask her to pray. But she does not know the details unless she happens to be involved in the particular issue. The family I grew up in consisted of four boys. Three of them are alcoholics. God protected me from alcohol. I've never had a drink, and I thank God for that. Because who knows where I'd be? Three out of four are alcoholics. Men, we're called to protect our homes from spiritually harmful influences. I'm going to give you some examples, okay? I don't think it's a good idea to allow alcohol in your home at all. Even social drinking. But let me be blunt about this. And guys, I'm saying this very bluntly in order for you to get it. You're a fool to allow that in your home if there is family history of alcoholism. It represents a failure to protect your family from great harm. And yet some of you do that. Some of you have shown your children what's important, and you have allowed this intruder of a false value system to come into their minds and hearts by giving your children all the best or complaining because you cannot have all the best. And what that does is help them focus on material things rather than spiritual. They see, guys, what's important to us. Or what about what we watch on television or the movies that we allow to be viewed. You know, there was a time when Christians just didn't go to movies. Did you know that? And and you're all sitting here going, wow, what a miserable existence that would be. Look, there's, there's no rule about going to movies. Discernment is always the issue. But I'm amazed that I am amazed at the lack of discernment of professing Christian people. 
and men were called to protect our families from harmful spiritual influences. That means that you establish some standards and some rules in your home. Rules do not change the heart. I understand that. But good rules point us to where the heart should be, even if the heart is not in it. But it means you would have to be willing to be called by somebody a legalist. So you're just going to have to be okay with that. Oh, really? You got these, all these rules on your, your kids? Wait, what kind of legalist are you? Okay? Just take that somewhere else, all right? But that's what will happen. And if you're more concerned about being called a legalist than protecting your home, that's your responsibility. Let me ask you this, man. What about the spiritual effect of your use of your tongue in the home? Or how you allow your children to do so with unmonitored, my goodness, all the gadgets our kids have? Guys, are you able to look at your kids' stuff anytime you think you need to? You should be. Who's paying the bill for that text, that, that phone? I can take my daughter's phone anytime I feel I need to and look at it. And their Facebook account and any other account they have. And I have a God-given responsibility to do that. So do you. So what about the spiritual effect of the way you use your tongue in the home or allow your children to do so with unmonitored texting that in some cases has been and is used as a weapon against others? Some of you allow that in your homes. I'm going to read for you a couple of testimonies from men. These are testimonies that these courageous men have voluntarily given in their desire to hopefully be a help to their brothers. These involve warning and they involve confession. My name is Todd Hewitt, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to address the congregation in order to present both a warning and confession about the harm that sinful speech can do. I may, everybody may not know who Todd is. Todd is right back here. Todd's got his hand up. Everybody see him? Okay, that's Todd. Todd, you're the man. Thank you. And I'm pointing him out so that when I'm done with this, you can go to Todd and say thank you. But Todd says this, The warning is in hopes of keeping what happened to my family from happening to yours. My 14-year-old daughter has recently been the victim of sinful speech that resulted in her personal hurt and her isolation from the youth group and church as a whole. She had been befriended by an individual who told her things about others and told her things others had supposedly said about her. This resulted in her withdrawing from any involvement with other teens in our church. It has recently come to light that much of what she was told was untrue. The individual who told her these things has been confronted, and it's our hope and prayer that this sinful activity will cease. But we have reason to believe that other young people and families have been harmed in similar ways, and so we warn you not to believe what you hear about others without approaching them with the information. Which brings me to the confession. 
I now realize that I should have addressed this the moment it began by insisting that my daughter and the other girl approach individuals about their supposed statements rather than just accepting them as truth. Had I done so, I would have exposed that many of, it would have exposed that many of the statements were false or would have called to account those who made hurtful statements, whether true or false. Men, I urge you to take leadership in your homes in this important area of sinful use of the tongue for the protection and spiritual well-being of those you love. Do not allow this intrusion of words into your home just as you would not allow someone to physically enter your home with the intention of harming your family. Thank you, Todd. Here's another. My name is Jim Pantelli. Most of you know Jim. There's Jim right back by the sound booth. And do the same with him. Thank you, Jim. Jim says, as a father, I've always attempted to fight the influence of the world and its philosophies and the potential effect it has on my children. I've always tried, sometimes succeeding, sometimes failing, to contribute to my kids' welfare, both physically and spiritually. I remember times in the lives of my children when another child influenced them to evil, and it saddened my heart, and it made it very difficult for me to love this child the way Christ commands me to. We've all had experiences like that where we desire to protect our children. While it's tempting, he says, to pat myself on the back because I'm a great dad and my kid's protector, I've come to realize that in a spiritual sense, I've been the one who has, on more occasions than I want to admit, been the worldly influence on my children. My kids have heard their dad talk about others in a sinful manner. Ephesians 4.29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I'd like to emphasize the last seven words, that it may benefit those who listen, Jim says. If that's a spiritual standard for a believer and the use of his words, then I've sinned against God against you, and against my children. I've come to realize the ungodly effect it has had on my kids and those around me, and I am determined, with God's help, to eliminate this destructive habit and truly become my kids' protector. Amen. Thank you, brother. Now, if you're a first-time guest here, you say, wow, do you have confessions every week? The answer is no, but... That wouldn't be all bad. But the answer is no. It's unusual, but for a very good thing. Thanks be to God. And I just say to you, if you're new, if you don't know who we're talking about, who these men are, who their families are, if you're looking for a church, you found a church where it's safe to be a sinner, which means we deal with sin. If you want that kind of church, this would be a good place for you to consider. But sin is destructive. It's destructive to individuals. It's destructive to families. It's destructive to churches. And thanks be to God when he exposes sin for the good of his people and for the good of his church. Our youth group has been harmed by the tongue. Aided by adult failure. Passively allowing it and even actively modeling it. Our teens are going to be dealing with some of what God has brought to light in the next hour in their class. But understand, Dad, your failure may be affecting your family right now in this area. 
Julia had withdrawn to her great harm. And some of you are watching your children withdraw and you've allowed it. Make no mistake. Make no mistake with this. It is not a failure of the youth group. It is not as though we've got some sort of... Are you kidding me? Don't get me started on how great that youth group is. And how great those leaders are. It is not a failure of the youth group. It's your failure to lead. And I beg you to stop aiding the spiritual demise of your family and its estrangement from its church and do what Todd and Jim have said. Repent of your talk. Find out if you've been, what you've been told is true. And even if it is, ask yourself why it's been said at all. Next week, our message is going to be from Ephesians 4.29. As I told you about a month ago, I would do in a month. That's next week. And then we're putting this behind us. By God's grace, Community Bible Church is going to move forward and do damage for the kingdom of Jesus. Satan hates this place. But he can only win if we give him a foothold. So thank you, Lord God, allowing us to come to this juncture in the life of our church, revealing what needs to be excised from us, and so helping us to move on, pruning us for greater fruit in the future. Guys, real men love Jesus. Guys, real men repent. And I say in the take-home truth at the bottom of your outline, men are called to lead their families to Jesus. Now, one last thing, and this is why I had to hasten. I had a bunch of stuff we had to do, but good stuff. Painful, but thanks be to God. And now we have one other item of business before we close. I mentioned earlier in the announcements that Sharon is retiring. James and Sharon Sternberg are going to be relocating to the Kalamazoo area. They've been with us for several years, and they have been a great blessing to me personally and to our church corporately. James has served faithfully as a greeter for many years. Many of you, he was the first smile that you saw when you, when you came here. And he's bonded with a number of people. As a result of that, Betty Bovere is now with the Lord. She died just a few weeks ago. And when I went up to her hospital room, her daughter Lola was there, and Lola said James was here earlier, visiting Betty because he had developed a bond with her through his ministry of welcome and hospitality. He helped us with this building and doing work in this building in phase one in order for us to get in here using his gifts as a carpenter. Sharon has served faithfully in preparing the prayer list for us every week. She has counseled other women, carrying out her ministry through Healing Hearts Ministries for post-abortive women. Let me say as a pastor, I can't tell you how encouraging it has been for years to see this couple sitting right up front. They used to sit in the front row until you guys stole their seats. They stole your seats. And you brought them to this church, didn't you? You brought these guys, and they stole your seats. What ingrates. Used to sit right up front. Now they're backsliding. 
But I mean, they are right there, listen to this, and, and they are listening and hanging on every word that God has. And taking notes and being changed thereby. And you've been an encouragement to me personally as well. But James and Sharon are going to share a few words, and then we'll have our closing song. every good husband, I'm going to let her go first. I listen. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I had to write this down or I'll go off on all kinds of bunny trails. We first came to CBC a long time ago for Eugene LaChapelle's baptism. I had been a longtime member of another church and was happily serving there, so coming to CBC wasn't on my radar at that time. After quite a few years, things started happening at the church that concerned James and me, so we began looking around at other churches. I had no intention of coming to CBC. It met at a high school, and I didn't want to meet at a high school. I'm in a high school every day of the week. I wanted my pew. I wanted the churchy atmosphere. But God had other plans. Kim LaChapelle and I have known each other for nearly 30 years, and she was faithful in always inviting us here So we relented and we visited. I liked what I heard, and everyone seemed to be genuinely glad to see us. They remembered our names. We came back the second week, and as God would have it, Pastor Ken's message was something about what a marriage should look like. He said, if your marriage doesn't look like this, and if anyone needed to talk to him about their marriage struggles, to let him know. James and I had a truly rocky marriage, and when I heard Pastor's message, I broke down and I cried. And it was a really good thing. I was sitting in the front row, so nobody saw me. Um, I told James we needed to meet with him. And even though he didn't know us, he generously gave us his time. James and I had previous marriages, and we each had a ton of baggage. We knew we loved each other, but we had brought stuff into our marriage that was killing it. After 10 years, we both were ready to throw in the towel and call it quits. There was distrust, anger, lies, many fights, accusations. You get the picture. It was ugly, and it, was, and it hurt. Pastor Ken met, both, met with both of us and heard each other's stories. I was defensive and critical and James was controlling and angry. Pastor had his work cut out with us. Mind you, we weren't members of CBC, just visitors, but he took the time to counsel us. And what made us keep coming back was the fact that he counsels with only the word of God. God's word is sufficient. There was a point where I became frustrated and I quit. It didn't seem like James was changing. But James began attending men's fraternity with Rich Carrico and Pastor Ken and a couple other men on Saturday morning. Rich and Pastor met with James for an hour each week before the session and helped him sort through the pain of his past. I began seeing a difference. The anger was lessening. He wasn't as controlling, and he was becoming fun to be around. After several weeks, Pastor Ken called me and wanted to meet with both of us. So I went. 
He said he wanted to hear some things from me, and I took that as being put under a microscope. But I learned a lot about myself that I needed to change. Pastor Ken tells it straight up, but in a way that never offended either of us. God used him to help us get real with each other and to get real with God. Was it easy? No way. Did it hurt sometimes? Yep. Recognizing my sin, not making excuses for it, and taking responsibility for changing my behavior was key. And that's what James had been learning in his meetings with Pastor Ken and Rich. I'm proud of my husband and his dedication in meeting with those men. During those many months, he never skipped a meeting, and each week I could see change. James tells me that I, too, have changed, and we're actually enjoying each other. We have become best friends. It took a humbling on our part to confess our need for help. That's the hardest part, humbling yourself. But if your marriage is in trouble, may I suggest you swallow your pride and talk to Pastor Ken. If both spouses are not willing to go, go alone. Pastor invites his wife, Kim, to the meeting if he is just meeting with the wife. Kim is a listener and is sensitive to your needs as a woman and a wife. Are James and I there yet? No. But we know how and when to apply godly principles to our issues and trust that God is able to change us and our circumstances. Would we ever have had the courage to make this move to the other side of the state in the condition our marriage was in a couple of years ago? No way. We are so thankful to Pastor Ken and CBC. We love this place. We love the people. And we love how the Lord has allowed us to serve here. We trust him that he will place us in as good a church. But then I wrote, wait, is that possible? (laughs) Thanks for this opportunity to share what the Lord has done in our lives. We love you guys. I guess I should say a few things. Just, uh, I didn't write it all down. I just kind of wing it this morning. I uh, talked to Pastor Ken before his service, and and, uh, he said he trusted me. (laughs) But... uh, uh, biggest thing for me is that uh, I come from a really, really bad background. Uh, (laughs) uh, It's kind of hard to talk about, but uh, a lot of abuse and stuff when I was growing up into the system. But, you know, you think you push that stuff down and you get strong and you don't let anybody attack you or, or cause any pain to you because you use anger and defensiveness uh, to, uh, as, a, as your defense mechanism to keep people at a distance and not, not open up and not let people understand what's going on. Uh, lost a sister to her taking her own life because of the situation, but uh, I can tell you this, that if you are dealing with situations inside of you, uh, men's fraternity is very hard, very difficult for you to go through, but it's necessary. I never finished any of the steps, but through the grace given to me by Pastor Ken and Rich, they understood. They, they actually accepted me no matter what, and you have to take that courage to step out and talk to someone. You have to get through that situation. And I can tell you this, Pastor Ken and Rich were just like solid 
in Christ. They, they talked to me. They understood. They made no excuses for me. They understood, but I don't have excuses for being angry at people or being defensive, you know. So I truly owe them and all of you guys a, a huge debt, you know. It's just been amazing how accepting and loving you guys have all been to us, and we appreciate it. We will miss you dearly. So, Come right down here, okay? Thanks so much. Thank you, man. Uh, thank you for your courage, your transparency, and sharing that. I have no doubt that there are people here right now who absolutely needed to hear what you what you guys had to say. So you've ministered to our hearts uh, over the years and on this, uh, your last day with us. A sad day, but you're only a few hours away. Mm-hmm. We got your retirement party this Saturday, so we'll see you again on Saturday, Lord willing, and several times over the next uh, few years. But we wish you Godspeed, and, and thank you. And again, thank you, Todd. And thank you, thank you, Jim. Listen, friends, this is what God's church is about. God's grace changes people. God's word changes people. But we have to open our hearts and we have to have, as these dear friends said, we have to have the humility to say, I need to change. I need the help. That's the first step. If you'll do that, God is there for you. We are there for you. God's word is there for you. And you can take the next step toward Christ-likeness. Now what we're going to do is we're going to stand and be dismissed with a song. Do we have a song? All right. Come on, musician types. (laughs) and in a moment we'll stand and have our closing song and uh, it will take too long for everybody to come here and greet you guys so what I'm going to do is encourage you guys to uh, seek them out during cafe community thank them for their their testimony and for their service here likewise with Todd and with Jim and then after our second hour we're going to have you guys go stand at the back door And uh, anybody who didn't get to see you during Cafe Community can see you then, okay? All right, let's stand for our closing song.